Alright, tonight is week seven of me preaching in a row. I will not be doing that again. But, God, I've really enjoyed Isaiah so far. Um, it's just been such a, a great book for me personally to spend time in during the week diving into. And uh, I hope you're enjoying it as well. Um, I was reflecting back this week on some of the job interviews I've had in my life. Um, all of the job interviews I had all happened before I was 21, or 22 I should say. And I've never had a job interview since. Um, the first one was with the head of marketing at Johnson & Johnson as a 17-year-old schoolboy. And the guy who was the head of the marketing department took me to dinner. And I don't know why, but he gave me a job. So that was incredible. Um, the next was in London for a sales role for a research company. The recruiter asked me how driven I was by making lots of money. And I said, not really. And I'm not kidding you, that was the end of the interview. <laughs> it was just like, that was, that was it, it was done. The next one was also in London for another sales job. The interviewer asked me to tell a joke, which I thought was a strange thing to do in an interview. But whatever I'd said made him laugh, and so he gave me the job. Um, and then the final one was for, a, was for a big company, which I actually ended up working for for two years, and I went to travel across Europe seeing clients, which was very... Um, an, a, it was an incredible blessing from God. Um, but I got into the interview, I was well underqualified. I had the baggiest suit that I'd got tailor-made for myself when I was in Kenya. Um, and I got into this interview, and the woman was married to a former Colombian Catholic priest. And I'd just done a year of volunteering in Africa, and so we just talked about charity stuff for like an hour. And then she said, do you think you can do the job? And I said, I'll give it a go. <laughs> and wacko, I got a job. So I'm so glad I have not had to do any more job interviews since then. Um, well, in today's passage, Isaiah 49, if you want to turn your Bibles, God posts a job advertisement for a servant who will come and restore his people, who will be a light to the Gentiles, to the entire world, and it says, will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. I don't know if anyone's thinking of applying for that role. <laughs> that's, that's just a small role being advertised in Isaiah 49. We've already seen in the book of Isaiah that God posts an advertisement in chapters 7 to 12 for this mysterious child who will be born, who will come into the world, who will be born of a virgin, who will reign on the throne of King David, and who will establish justice on the face of the earth. And, you know, like a lot of the prophecies in Isaiah, different people apply. Uh, at the time, they thought maybe it was King Hezekiah who came a little bit after that prophecy. Um, others thought they might be the person. Um, but basically, they always keep falling short. You know, they can't fulfill the requirement that God is looking for in this child who will bring justice to the nations. And, and so the vacancy in one sense goes unfulfilled until Jesus comes on the scene. Well, in this next section of Isaiah, chapters 40 through to 55, written to the people while they're in exile, they're waiting to return to Jerusalem. Another requirement for who's going to be God's saviour in this role description begins to emerge. And in the same way that a child in Isaiah 11 is full of the Spirit, will bring righteousness and justice uh, and bring the nations to the light of God and be blessed by the people of God, 
uh, the same kind of themes emerge in chapters 40 to 55. But this time it is this servant. Listen to the qualifications of the servant that God requires who will be the saviour of the world. Now remember, this is written six, seven hundred years before Jesus. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice and he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. And in his teaching, the islands will put their hope. We could just leave in those verses alone today, but I want to get to Isaiah 49 in just a moment, where we'll spend most of our time. But here's what's interesting to me. This role description of the servant, some pretty big things are going to be required of the saviour of the world. The messianic servant, the child of Isaiah 7 to 12, as I said, have a lot of the same things in common. They're spirit filled. They bring justice. They bring compassion to the world. And the whole of all the nations will come and be blessed by this servant figure. Now, like any job opening, I says, as I said, at first, there's lots of applicants until we finally settle in on this one true child this one true servant who can fulfill the role description. Now, why do we think this? Why do, why do we think that it narrows in? Well, regularly in the Old Testament, Israel, that's God's people, are called my servant. Uh, example, Psalm 105, 5 to 6. Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles, the judgments he pronounced. You, his servants, the descendants of Abraham, his chosen ones, the children of Jacob. And we know, don't we, that originally God's plan was to form a nation who would be blessed by God to be a blessing unto all the nations on earth. And so originally this plan of bringing justice to the entire world belonged to all the people of God. And in Isaiah 41, all of Israel, all of Abraham's descendants are called my servant once again. They're called God's chosen one in whom he will help and strengthen. But we know that they don't live up to their side of the bargain, their side of the covenant that God has made with them. Indeed, in Isaiah 42, the servant, referring to all of God's people, is called deaf and blind. They're not paying attention to God. They're not listening to him. And so in one sense, they don't get the job. The people of Israel don't get the job of being the saviours of the world. Remember week one of Isaiah, uh, God describes them as like a vineyard planted by God and they were designed to produce good fruit. But it says when God went into the vineyard, all he found was rotten fruit. He found stinkers. And it's not so much that the people of God, Israel, get the sack, but God goes on looking for someone who can fulfill the role. Does that make sense? Right? So it's going to narrow down, narrow down. So as Isaiah 40 to 55 continues, this section we're in today, the applicant who can fulfill what God requires to be his servant narrows down. Where all the people of God have failed to bring justice and mercy to the nations, you know, they were meant to be a light. All of a sudden, this solitary servant figure appears in Isaiah. 
One in whom God will use to fulfill his plans and bring salvation for all the nations. Now, now Greg Beach next Sunday gets the best passage in Isaiah. You know, Isaiah 53, where the suffering servant appears. The one who is pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And we know how Jesus fulfills that through his death on the cross. But this narrowing down of the servant begins in chapters 49. Let's have a look. So I think we've got a slide for it. Uh, Isaiah 49, 3 to 6. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant and bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. He says, is it too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel that I have kept? So the very first task of this mysterious servant figure that appears in Isaiah is to gather back God's people, Israel, to himself. And we read that when God's uh, servant comes, he will come in splendor. And we talked about that last week, about how God comes in his glory. His manifest presence is displayed in Jesus. So this servant, we are told, will be formed in the womb. Now that's a clue, isn't it? That that refers to one servant rather than all of the people. And they're tasked with the role of bringing back God's people to himself, right? Verse 6, the servant will restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I remember one of the things that shocked me a bit when I first began to um, go deeper in my faith and read the Bible for myself and to read the Gospels um, was how much the Gospels is really a story about a Jewish man ministering and speaking to Jewish people, right? He does his ministry around Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas. He ministers to the Jews. Uh, We'll get to us in a second, us Gentiles, that's the rest of the world. But I think it's worth noting that as we read the Gospels, um, Jesus comes into an ancient story of a servant figure who has come to restore the people of God. So he's the fulfilment of their promises. He's the fulfilment of their expectations. And what a lot of the Gospels then is about is will his people, because Jesus was Jewish, will his people reject him or will they believe in him unto life? And like a lot of Jesus, it's very unexpected. Um, When Jesus appears, many of the religious figures do reject him. And ultimately, as we know, they, they have him killed. Uh, and Jesus regularly calls out these religious leaders as hypocrites and guilty of failing to do what is required. But then there are all these unexpected stories of redemption where God is gathering Israel back to himself. And, it, you know, it's amazing grace. Um, think of the Jewish tax collector Zacchaeus. You know, again, he's a, he, Jesus, a Jew, ministering to Zacchaeus. A Jewish person working for the Roman Empire. He's kind of betrayed his own people. And yet Jesus saves him. And in explaining it, he, he says in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. 
Do you begin to see how like everything is just drenched in the book of Isaiah? Right? Jesus sees his mission of restoring these broken, fallen individuals and restoring them back to God. Now, it's the same with the Samaritan woman. It's the same with the deaf, the lame, the blind, who he heals. Again, he describes his mission, Matthew 20, 28. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. The servant has appeared, right? This long-awaited servant who will gather his people has arrived. Now, for me, the most touching moment in all of this is Matthew 23, 37. Uh, I I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Do you hear the voice of God? Do you hear the voice of Isaiah in that? This is God come in the flesh and he longs to gather his children like a chick gathers her little chick, hen gathers her chicks under her wing. And it's an incredibly tender moment. In one sense, it's a heartbreaking moment. You know, Jesus is saying, I've come to gather you back. And yet you're still rejecting me. But that's the heart of the servant. He comes to gather God's people. And I'd simply remind you that God is not finished with his covenant people. Um, you know, in church world, this is a sometimes controversial issue. And I don't want to get too much into that tonight. But I just remind you that God is not finished with his covenant people. Just as at the beginning of Acts, thousands of Jewish people, when Peter preaches, call on the name of the Lord Jesus and they are saved. Uh, Through history, God has always been at work calling his first children back into relationship with himself. You know, I know today, you know, the, 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 I think the most highly regarded evangelist in the world, probably the most prominent Christian in the world, is Nicky Gumbel, right? Founder of the Alpha Course. And he is of Jewish descent. And isn't that a beautiful thing? Um, our own Katie Stuckin, who comes mainly in the morning here, when she lived in Jerusalem, she worshipped with the Mount Carmel Assembly, a church of Jewish and Gentile believers in Jesus. And it's an amazing church where many of the Jewish people are still coming to faith. All right, this role description of the servant continues, verse 6, and it becomes very good news for us. Uh, I love that bit where it says about good news to the islands. I feel like that's us. That's us in Australia, right? Um, Isaiah 49, verses 6 to 7, of this servant. He says of this servant, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to him who is despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down. So there you go. Because of this servant who will be a light to the Gentiles, that's everyone who's not Jewish in the world, God's salvation will now reach to the ends of the earth. And like, I hate to break it to you, but like Australia is the ends of the earth, right? <laughs> if you're going from like Jerusalem to, to Sydney, that's about as far as you can fly, right? And yet that's what happened. Salvation from this prophet Isaiah has gone out to the ends of the earth. So this one who is despised and abhorred by his own nation will have kings pay attention and princes bow down. 
I don't know if you've ever listened to one of the Queen's speeches at Christmas. I don't know, just me on the ABC. But the Queen's like a deeply committed Christian. You know, particularly I've noticed in the last five to ten years, she uses her Queen's speech every Christmas to basically spread the good news of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? The Queen of the Commonwealth has bowed her knee at the one who died on the cross. Isaiah said it first, so we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. So the fulfilment of Isaiah 49 is that Jews and Gentiles will be brought into one family. Uh, Remember our Ephesians series, verse 14 of chapter 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Yeah, it was so nice. Even this morning, I noticed, you know, like um, Ryan Emma was doing tech for us. And Ryan's from a Jewish family in Chicago in America. And he's come to put his faith and trust in Jesus. And now we're part of one big family. So, yeah, it's all coming true, people. It is all coming true. All right. Now, sometimes this passage in Isaiah 49 is called the Old Testament's Great Commission. Now, you guys know, don't you, the Great Commission from Matthew 28? Jesus says, therefore, go make disciples of all nations. And it's really interesting because in the book of Acts, Paul understands this mission of going and making disciples of all nations. As Paul goes out to the Roman Empire and begins to preach the good news by quoting Isaiah 49. Isn't that cool? Paul sees his role in preaching the gospel to the Gentiles as a fulfillment of what Isaiah had said. And really, that is the story, isn't it, that we all then get folded into. Jesus coming to his own, some believing, some rejecting, and then that same message of salvation, then just bursting out of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, you know, with the arrival of the Spirit, and this message that Jesus has died and risen, and that he is Lord of all, going out to all the nations on earth. And so we too, we have to make that decision about Jesus. Do we believe in him? Do we reject him? Do we follow him? Or do we go our own way? And then we get, if we decide to follow him, that great privilege, don't we, of sharing the good news of salvation in Christ. So what's God's mission in Isaiah for his servant is fulfilled by Jesus and then it continues into the world through his spirit-filled believers. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I was saddened to hear about the death of my old um, Christian history professor at Regent College, um, an amazing Christian historian called Don Lewis. Uh, He was 71, and um, the grief at Don's passing was palpable around the world. He'd impacted so many many lives. He was a great academic. I used to love listening to his lectures on the history of Christianity. But more so, he was just a wonderful man and a friend to the students. And um, on Wednesday nights, we used to go to class and then we'd go to this Irish pub and drink beer with Don Lewis. And we used to have some some of the the best memories I had from my time in Vancouver in Bible College. Anyhow, the tributes flowed in and one particular one I read, I found very moving. It was written by a Toronto pastor and it was titled, Why I Owe Don Lewis everything. He explained, this pastor explained that his dad met Don while they were both studying philosophy at Bishop's University in Quebec. Uh, The pastor's dad had come from a privileged family as the son of a superior court judge. 
in Canada. Um, no particular religion or faith within the family. But in studying philosophy, he says of his dad, he didn't buy it as the ultimate explanation for his ultimate questions. His heart remained restless, angry even, despairing. And that is when he met Don, the son of a Pentecostal minister, and he explains it this way. In the final year of dad's undergraduate studies, he and Don Lewis became fast friends. They were soon spending hours together discussing life, faith, God, and everything in between. And as they talked, Don found opportunities to explain the gospel of grace and to call Dad to it. Eventually, Dad realised he had finally found ideas that were big enough to fill his mind and great enough to satisfy his heart. Here's how Don explained it in the eulogy he delivered at my father's funeral. Slowly, his questions were heard. His raging against life and God was stilled. And after about six months, John had found his way into the kingdom of God. Is that cool? Not long after, this guy's dad, um, so the post goes, met a young woman at Bishop's University in Quebec. And when he met her, she was on the verge of suicide, right? She just... She was nihilistic. She was finding everything meaningless. Um, they, they became friends. They then dated. She became a Christian. And then not too long later, they got married. You can probably see why he titled the article, Why I Owe Don Lewis Everything. The author writes, Mum and Dad had five children. And all of us know the Lord. We have 16 children between us. They all know the Lord, at least those who are old enough to be able to express it. But there's more. Dad told his mum about Jesus. She believed. He told his older sister and she too believed. Mum told her sister. She believed. And those families too now boast three generations of believers. And if we trace the Christian faith of all these people, perhaps 40 or 50 of us now, they all eventually converge on Don Lewis. They all converge on a young man who simply and faithfully shared the gospel. Isn't that a remarkable and lovely story? And and one of the things that I love about that is that's not beyond our reach. You know, this is not a story about Billy Graham preaching in a stadium. This is a story of a young man who took his faith seriously and shared it with someone in need whose life was then transformed, transformed other lives. And now there's generations of new believers. And all of that is the result of the prophecy of Isaiah 49 verse 6 being fulfilled by God's servant figure being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now I'm sure many of us here tonight could share a similar story about how somehow our family's life or your life was intersected with the gospel of grace and it changed the course of your or your family's history. All right, final thing today. Uh, what is the result of all of this? Um, what's the result of salvation going out to the ends of the earth? I think this is important because, you know, what is preached by us Christians isn't preached because we think we're right and we just think everyone else is wrong and we're trying to prove that they're wrong and we're right, you know? If that's your motivation for sharing the gospel, that sounds exhausting. <laughs> you're not, not going to get far with that. Now, the motivation for God, 
The motivation for Jesus, the motivation for all of us, should be that God is restoring his good creation and he is bringing life to what is dead and to what is lost. Listen to this next bit of Isaiah 49. There's a lot of metaphor, a lot of poetry here, but you can apply it to your life. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land, to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to captives, come out to those in darkness, be free. And they will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them, because he who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. Now, I don't have time to go into all the benefits of salvation tonight. Uh, The benefits of the Christian faith having spread out across the world and, and brought so much humanity and compassion and justice to different nations on earth. Yeah, you know, just note, who's the guy who wrote that book? Tom Holland. You know, he was an atheist and he thought he was a, he thought he was a, he was a, he was a, 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 a the result of, of Greek and Roman philosophy. And then as he, he realized that he wasn't, they were a savage, barbaric people who put thousands and millions to death. He realised that the society that had produced him where charity was a good thing and every life mattered was the result of Christian influence. The book's called Dominion by Tom Holland. It's a great read. But I hope you pick up on some of the imagery here in Isaiah 49. I know the desolate land is restored. I know captives are released. Those in darkness are freed. The recipients of salvation will go neither hungry nor thirsty, nor will they be beaten down by the elements. They receive compassion. They are guided to springs of water. That's the motivation for God in sending this solitary servant figure into the world. He brings salvation to all of the nations. And he's still in the business of gathering the tribes of Jacob. God is in the business of restoring what is captive, what is desolate, what is in the dark, what is hungry and thirsty, what is dry, back to life. Now, some of that's literal. You know, God can literally set you free from the things that hold you captive. And then some of it we need to kind of apply our Christian imaginations to. You know, what does it mean for us to feel like we're just relentlessly under the elements with things beating down on us and there's no respite and we're just hungry and thirsty and then we meet salvation and it guides us besides streams of living water? What would that look like in your life? But this is our God. This is our God. And won't you come, Lord Jesus, and do it again? Amen. Amen.